This is the MRC podcast number 36, coming to you from the Mentis Research Centre. We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to the Menzies Research Centre podcast. I'm Nick Cater, I'm Executive Director. My guest today is Robin Batterham, who is Australia's Chief Scientist for seven years under the John Howard Government. Uh, He's a graduate in Chemical Engineering from the University of Melbourne and was awarded his PhD in 1969, I believe, from the Distinguished Chancellor at the time, Sir Robert Gordon Menzies. Welcome, Robin, is that right? Did you receive your, your PhD from the great man himself? Oh, Nick, uh, what a pity. I actually received it in absentia. Um, uh, when I'd handed my PhD in, I'd uh, already got a uh, scholarship to spend almost anywhere I wanted to uh, in the world. And uh, where I chose happened to be out of Australia for the postdoc. Um, and so I'd cleared off uh, before my PhD was finally uh, approved. So I actually picked the degree up uh, in absentia. So I missed out on that one. <laughs> What a pity. But you, you had a distinguished career as a chemical uh, engineer, I think. Uh, you, were with, you, were, you served as president of the Institution of Chemical Engineers and Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering, and you were an international fellow at the Royal Academy of Engineering. I think that's correct. Uh, Nick, you've obviously been doing your homework. Uh, that's correct. Um, um, actually an academician or whatever you want to call it, an elective fellow of uh, seven academies, uh, dare I mention, the Chinese, uh, the Indian, the American, uh, the UK, uh, two Australians and the Swiss, um, which is great fun because it keeps you in touch with a, a wonderful network uh, of people around the world. Yeah, we might talk a bit about that network and how science actually operates a bit later on. But first of all, I should just say that we connected um, really quite recently, didn't we, when we, we, we found ourselves working together with a number of other groups on uh, what I think is a very exciting project on regenerative agriculture. Uh, now, we've debated, I think, in a, in a number of Zoom meetings already this year whether that's the best term. It's a complicated, long word for, for something which really is quite simple, I think. Could you just tell me, regenerative agriculture, what is it and what's your involvement? Uh, it's surprising. The For a start, you can't define it in one line. Uh, you could turn around and be a smart ass and say, well, let's have a long line and I'll define it to be the mix of agricultural practices that results in your soil health improving. And that's about as close as I could get to defining it. Yeah, I, I think it's it's very exciting because it plays into some some quite important debates on on obviously our climate policy, but also agriculture, uh, productivity of the soil, and um, uh, you know uh, resistance to drought too. So there's a lot to cover in that in that space, and we'll come back to that. Um, Let's go back to your time. You were appointed chief scientist in 1999. I think at that point it wasn't a full-time position. It was three days a week, which meant that it was almost 24-7. In uh, public policy, which is obviously where we work at the Mentors Research Centre, we've been a little bit critical, or, or rather questioning, I should say, of the extent to which uh, an elected leader, prime minister, minister, should outsource decisions to experts. I mean, obviously there are things which require 
expert advice, but it seems to me there's um, a tendency to sort of say, well, that's what the experts say uh, and that's it. I don't have to make a decision myself. Do, do you sense that trend? I think the role of experts is one that you can dive into and you can you can be lazy and say that's the job of experts um, uh, but I would put it around another way I would invert it and say any expert in any area should be able to explain what they're on about in a way that is totally understandable such that those that have got to make the decisions can weigh up not a bunch of gobbledygook that they don't actually understand uh, or see the point of, but can weigh up something which they understand and they have a feeling for. So uh, it's a bit of a cop-out to say, well, the experts say that, therefore we've got to do it. No, no, no. You've got to be able to say, the experts told me that if we pay attention to soil carbon, we're going to be more resistant to droughts. We're going to be more resilient. So I want to go there. And here's the program that I'm suggesting. That's very different to saying, well, the experts have said we've got to increase our resilience and soil carbon is the way to go. Yeah, and I think what encapsulated this problem for me was um, recently during the COVID-19 crisis. And uh, there was a tendency for governments, um, uh, state premiers to justify some of these very tough um, social distancing and lockdown measures on the grounds that that's what the expert was saying. But it seemed to me that you that that's probably what the chief medical officer was saying, but you'd also have your, your economists, uh, your, your people managing finance, who also experts who might give completely different advice. So surely the, the role of the, the elected uh, leader is to weigh up the advice and act in the public interest, which may, may be somewhere between or may not be what either of them are saying. I, I think that's uh, what we pay our leaders for, uh, thank you very much, is to weigh, uh, is to weigh things uh, up. Um, and if we look at the, the current debate, let's get very topical. One of the debates right at the moment is, is Victoria in the middle of a second wave or not? And you'll find a range of expert uh, comment. Uh, at some stage, uh, you'll, it's not too hard to find uh, uh, people who are saying, technically, this is not a second wave. Um, we just got an echo. <clears throat> or is that only at my end? I'm okay at this end, actually. Can you hear me okay? Do you want to, do you want to... Yeah, I can hear you okay. Yeah, you were saying about technically only a second wave. Te te technically, um, a second wave is defined as having got down to zero, then a wave comes in. That's called a second wave. That's the definition of a second wave. Now, for most people, that's a very academic definition. Far better for an expert to say, whilst we could call it a second wave, um, or not, that's not the point. We're currently heading into a worse place than where we were. So we've got to do something about it. That's far more helpful than debating whether we've got a second wave or not. And this is always, I think, with experts uh, giving advice. It's not a case of being correct as per your latest publication uh, or the prize that you won for some performance. It's are you giving advice which is based on 
sound technical arguments and facts uh, and is justifiable rather than being pedantic and necessarily um, crossing all of the academic I's and T's. Yeah, and it seems to me you're saying something else. You're saying, saying that they have to really be able to converse in plain English. Uh, and and uh, I wonder sometimes, maybe it's just a cynic in me, but, but you wonder sometimes whether people who are, have great expertise in a certain area or, 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 or want us to imagine they do actually make the language more complicated just to protect their own territory. Let me come at that from a different way. It's an interesting thing to say what characteristics in people do you find less than desirable? And one of them I would suggest is arrogance. Um, personally, uh, there are many others, of course, but uh, if I just hit on the uh, arrogance bit, there really is no excuse for arrogance. That's a case of judging yourself to be superior to others. Everyone can excel at something. It might be some can excel at many other things and excel uh, is, a, is a relative sort of term. So if you say, okay, if somebody is not able to express themselves in simple terms, is this because they're fundamentally arrogant or regarding themselves as superior or regarding it as not worthwhile explaining to you because you wouldn't be able to understand it anyway? I mean, that's just nonsense. There's only one person in my life that I've ever met that appeared arrogant um, but wasn't. This was a person who, in his head, cracked a problem that has been around since the days of Newton, I might add, um, and did it all uh, in his head. This was a person who, when he was confronted with an interesting real-world uh, problem, for example, British nylon spinners came in and said, you know, our spinnerets are giving uneven uh, threads, etc. what should we do? Oh, he said, that's easy. Um, I walked up to a, it was a blackboard then and wrote del to the fourth phi equals zero, which is one way of starting off with the equation of continuity, I might add, and then proceeded to fill up board after board after board and then said, there, that solved that one. And of course, nobody knew. He was lost even on the first line, let alone the second line. And some people I knew, my colleagues actually used to say, Ah, you know, this guy, um, Stephen Bush, he's, um, he's just so arrogant. By the way, he was elected to the Royal Society before he was 21. Um, Newton also, I think, uh, had that on, as I recall. And I said, no, he's not. He is just so far off on another planet that he doesn't realise that he's not dragging anyone with him. And that's the only person I've ever met that I ex would accept apparent uh, arrogance. For everyone else, particularly when they're experts hammering their view, no, no, if you can't explain it in simple terms, get one of your colleagues who understands the area to be the person who's out there talking with the politicians or the policy makers or whoever it is. Um, you were, during your time as chief scientist, of course, that was when uh, the issue of global warming really started to become a, a public policy issue. I mean, it been a scientific debate and discussion for, for, for a long time before that. Uh, but it seemed to me you got out um, uh, at an interesting time too, 2006, which is uh, 
when Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth came out, uh, and that's the point at which this issue really took off in the public imagination. I, I wonder if you had a bit more calm air in which to do, deal with this with government, or was it a heated issue from the start? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It was being taken very seriously by government uh, whilst I was uh, chief scientist. Uh, and indeed, to the credit of uh, the government uh, of the time, um, they did put the foot down on land clearing. And even though Australia didn't, whilst I was there, sign uh, the Kyoto uh, Protocol, um, they did actually meet the um, commitments that they would have had to make had they signed it. So uh, I don't put that up as an excusory note or anything, but just to indicate that, yes, they were uh, conscious of it. The, what we now have as the full CAM system to figure out what the soil carbon is um, all over Australia and what the uh, net emissions are and the emissions reduction, the accounting system that we have, is actually very, very good. And that was pulled together. The start of that uh, was pulled together um, at that time. So there was a lot of interest uh, in it. There was enough interest that when I suggested um, carbon capture and storage should be taken uh, seriously, it actually uh, had a few people um, going off the deep end. There was a, enough heat that I got the uh, shit in the letterbox stuff thrown against the uh, windows of our house here in uh, Parkville. Uh, quite unpleasant stuff because people uh, thought that all I was doing was trying to prolong the life of coal and I actually worked for a company that did have some pretty big uh, coal uh, interests whereas what I was trying to do was to say we're going to need every which way and I stand by that statement uh, now actually we're going to need every which way that makes sense and you don't do something like chase carbon in the soils for soil sequestration so that we can have the negative emissions as an excuse for just carrying on business as usual in other sectors. You tackle all of the opportunities and you do so, but you don't tackle everything you can think of. You tackle the opportunities that add up to making the most economic sense, making the most social uh, impact uh, sense uh, as well. So it's a complex thing, and I certainly copped a fair bit of flack. Yeah, I mean, you reminded me then that, that, that there was something we used to talk about. We used to talk about least cost abatement, which is the idea that you get, um, you know, the most you'd you'd, you'd 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 avoid emitting the most greenhouse gases for the least cost. It just seemed to be, this, you know, where where I sat, I was I was writing editorials for the Australian at the time. It just seemed dead dead simple. I think we've lost that argument somewhere along the line. We've got to come back to it, I think. Don't you agree? Um, Nick, that's an interesting one. I think we have to have it as an underlying platform for our thinking that you don't go running off, say, for direct air capture when it's looking to be a 1000 bucks per tonne versus soil sequestration, which is looking to be about $20 uh, a tonne. Um, you don't go running off for the thousand dollars a ton just because you like you can spell the words for example or you like uh, the sound of it um, so you've got to have some balance some underlying thing that does say it's not just about getting the emissions it's also about the costs the social costs the health costs uh, and so forth so you've got to take a more total approach 
And what happened with the lease cost abatement, and without giving any free advertisements to McKinsey's, who did some excellent work in the early days of this, and showed that there were some things that you could do that had negative cost. So why wouldn't you do them? And I've got to tell you that uh, in the company that I worked for at the time, I had global responsibilities uh, for innovation. I was asked, come up with a cost curve for abatement for every single operating site. And there was a rather large number of them around the world. And so I sent a team off to do this cost curve uh, stuff to come up with the least cost uh, abatement options. And would you believe there was only one site um, that was able to show any uh, negative cost abatement. And that site um, happened to be a, a diamond mine up in the Arctic, uh, which had some rather special circumstances associated uh, with it. And it wasn't a big number, I might add. Everyone else had already chased their emissions down because emissions come from buying fuel and burning it, thank you very much. Uh, and you're always trying to minimize your cost. Where it lost momentum is, for example, in thinking about something like insulating houses. And we won't go into the space of uh, roof insulation, which seemed a good idea at the time, but it's actually fundamental. You can look at the benefit of insulating houses and say, wow, the cost of doing that gives us very cheap abatement. But then the, it's more complex than that who actually pays for it and who gets the benefit. So society overall gets the benefit, but quite frankly, a landlord doesn't get any benefit from putting insulation in the roof. You can't put the rent up um, materially. The tenant might get marginal benefit in that the electricity bills might be a little bit uh, less. So it's one of these things where the actual benefits don't flow through to those who have to spend the money. It's not the tenant that pays for the putting the pink bats in the ceiling. It's the landlord, or it turned out to be the landlord plus the government until uh, there were a few mishaps, uh, as we both remember. Yeah, I, the, I, I always recall Ross Garneau um, describing this as a wicked policy problem, and I think you've, you've described exactly why that is, both in economics and in, um, and in the you know, the physical sciences, this is a very complex problem with lots of variables, probably too many for one head to, 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 to absorb, uh, and no kind of immediate end point. So you, you have to make some difficult policy choices on um, less than complete information sometimes. Yep. And I think you touched there on um, what are the prerequisites for people that give the, that have the privilege of being called on to develop policy or to give advice uh, in high places. And the answer is you've actually got to have at least three skills. Uh, some skill in politics to realize that uh, just because something sounds good doesn't mean that it's doable. Um, you could call that a little bit of political uh, uh, realism and skill. You've certainly got to understand economics and the human uh, side of things. Um, the costs and human impact always come into it. And then there's the whole, what actually is it in the technical and science uh, side. You could argue that to the people that you want to uh, put up to be uh, chief scientist of a country or chief medical officer uh, or whatever, um, 
ought to be skilled in those three areas and probably in that order. A sense of realism, understanding economics and society, and then whatever their specialty is. Well, as somebody who uh, gained their degree in sociology, I feel a bit impertinent talking to you about, about the nature of science. But let me put something to you. It seems to me, I've always been uncomfortable with this phrase, the science says, um, and because it's not my understanding of what science is doing. Science is not really a reference point for absolute truth, as I see it. It's, it's, a, it's an exploration. It's a process. Am I wrong or right? You're 100% right, and um, please come along and uh, uh, give uh, first-year lectures to all scientists and engineers um, and get, so that they get a, a very good grounding in what it is that they're uh, on about. Uh, Einstein uh, is credited with saying all sorts of things, uh, many of which he probably didn't, but that's by the by. Um, one of but one of which uh, he put in writing, uh, so it, it's quite well recorded. At some stage, um, uh, some of the scientific fraternity didn't like uh, where relativity um, was heading. And so they saw a hundred of them or thereabouts signed a note to Einstein, uh, essentially saying, we disagree. And uh, Yvonne, um, Einstein, the response was, thank you very much. I didn't need a hundred. If one person could show me I was wrong, then I'll accept it. But actually, I'm right. Um, so you get this that, that climate comes, sciences. Yeah, I mean, that, that comes to this other, this other categorical mistake, I think, where they say, well, the majority of scientists, 95% of the scientists in the world say X, therefore X. That, that you're... If what Einstein said is correct, then that's not true. You only need one person to disprove it and it falls over. Correct. And that then gets back uh, to answer your uh, comment uh, direct, directly that science says that's actually very dangerous because science is not in the truth business. That's the job of philosophers and religion. Science is in the business of working hypotheses. And that might sound a, a little bit abstract, but it's not. The whole point about science is that you come up with an idea of what makes the world tick, some aspect uh, of it. Um, you know, for example, um, uh, if you sever an apple from a tree and you're on the ground underneath it, do you need to move your forehead out of the path of the apple or can you actually stay where you are and watch the apple fly off into space? Now, we know the answer to that. Uh, we know that we can have a hypothesis that says um, bodies attract each other. And a consequence of that is that the apple will plummet towards the Earth, thank you very much, with an extraordinarily high probability. Uh, of course, there's events that you could postulate that might have it fly off in another direction, but they are so few that we can say with you know, four nines, five nines, ten nines percent certainty that if the apple is sent from the tree, it's going to head in the general direction of ground. Thank you very much. I do recall I might add the beer can test uh, when I worked up in the Pilbara and a cyclone comes in. Uh, there's three levels of warning for a cyclone. Uh, you know, one is you better be aware. Two is you better do something about it. And three is get the hell out of here. Um, level one, a full beer can, sorry, an empty beer can when dropped uh, falls near your feet. Uh, level two, a full beer can dropped 
falls near your feet. Level three, you don't know where the full beer can lands. Thank you very much. But that's just to finish off the Newton. We had a hypothesis there and we were able to find it very useful because we could predict where beer cans would fall in the cyclone up in the Pilbara, amongst many, many uh, other things. Now, if we kept finding when we did the experiment that actually the apple didn't fall down, some of the time it didn't, some of the time it didn't, then the hypothesis that it was all about bodies attracting each other through gravitational forces, you would have to just plainly discard it. A bored look on your face until you came up with the next hypothesis, which you would then use. So science is actually about useful hypotheses. And as soon as they're not useful, you drop them and pick up another one. Um, and there's no shame in that. Um, by the way, no, nor is there any inconsistency. Yeah, can I move on to another of my, my bugbears about the way we treat science these days or the way science is treated? So, uh, you know, you mentioned Einstein, and one thing Einstein did say, because I read the, read the speech from, I think, about 1948, uh, he says, and this is in defence of belief in God, incidentally, he says there are some things... Uh, for example, the weather, where there are so many variables that it is probably impossible to compute them all and come up with a, a conclusion. Now, of course, at that stage, uh, whatever computing power we had was pretty limited. Now we've got, you know, anybody can pick up a MacBook and they've got all the power in the world on an Excel spreadsheet. It seems to me that, that as a result of that, modelling has come in as a way of, of, of justifying a, a scientific thesis. But... That, that surely can't be. I mean, we, uh, science is based on observation, right? Absolute observation. And where modelling can be useful, uh, a model is not an observation. I, I could um, write, write a book on that one. Uh, and just um, one or two personal anecdotes. Uh, I was intrigued um, by the notion of mathematically modelling things as a method of proving how much you understood them. And that's what I did uh, for my postdoc. Um, and it's more or less what I've done for the rest of my life. But this is not mathematical modeling, where you say, I have a whole series of inputs, I have a whole, whole series of outputs. Um, I put a box in between them, I crank my uh, numerical methods or my uh, learning algorithms or whatever, um, and lo and behold, I can connect inputs to outputs. So if I vary an input, I can tell you what the uh, resulting output is going to be, even in quite complex uh, situations. And I might add um, things like Pontryagin for dynamic optimization uh, come up with all sorts of surprises before fighter aircraft became like rockets, uh, which they are now, they can stand in a vertical position hovering and then go straight up. This is amazing uh, power to weight ratio, thank you. Um, but before they did that, um, you had the effort of, uh, if you were flying along in a fighter plane and you saw somebody uh, approaching and you wanted to get away from them uh, and you wanted to get your speed up, did you just pull the accelerator, pull on more fuel 
and point in the direction of up? And the answer is no. You dive down to get your speed up using gravity to accelerate you so that the flow through the engine was higher so that then when you put a lot more fuel into it, it really took off. And then you pulled up in a steep, into a, a steep dive and you actually got up higher than if you at first sight of seeing whatever it was you were trying to get out of the way of, you'd pulled on the um, whatever it is, uh, flying instrument to get you uh, going higher. Now that was found by what I would call a black box model. And it still remains as one of the only examples where a black box model tells you something that wasn't intuitively obvious until somebody had explained it. But that's very, very different to saying, okay, let's model something based on the laws of physics, of chemistry, uh, etc. So if we've got a chemical reaction, we'll break it into all its component parts. And there might be 50 of them. There might be a couple of hundred of them. Along each one of them, because somebody's done the work in the lab, we'll have a rate equation uh, that tells us how fast it's going to go in the presence of the others. And we can churn the handle on that whole lot put together and actually say how a chemical, a complex chemical reaction uh, is which direction uh, it's going to head. Um, and we've used parameters, a very minimal number of parameters, most of them verifiable by quite separate experiments. So I hit on this idea of saying, if you can't model it, you don't understand it. And if your model doesn't fit the reality, the observations that is, that means you're not modeling the right things. You've got to chuck in another mechanism or pull a few out, uh, etc. And so I've used that uh, approach all my working life and it's paid off very well. It does get into trouble, of course, in areas where you haven't got the observation and to come back to your initial point um, and uh, climate into the future is one where you don't have the observation. You've got to wait till we get into the future until you have the observation. Um, it does, however, get into the state where we can get almost seduced by the complexity of the modeling that we're doing. And as a consequence, think that because we've got so much detail in it, it must be right. And the answer is if you haven't validated it, it is not a validated model. And it runs the risk of actually producing a nonsense. Uh, some of the very nice modeling that's been done, uh, one of the first films to use some very advanced computational fluid dynamics was the uh, film on the Titanic. And if you look at the pictures of water uh, rushing in and pushing furniture and, you know, disaster all over the place, that was all computer simulated by supercomputer, by CSIRO, out of Clayton, uh, by the way. I know the people uh, that did it. Uh, and, of course, it was great fun uh, for them, I might add. But none of that was validated. As to whether that was really like what the water was doing when it rushed into the Titanic. Nah, you're pretty brave to say that's what actually happened, but it looked terrific. So let's not believe some of the modeling just because it appears to have the physics right.
Yeah, I mean, the field of hydrology, which you mentioned, is is um, the modelist or the modelers seem to dominate that field now, from my experience of it. Uh, and um, yeah, sure. I mean, they can use all sorts of estimates of uh, uh, modeling of how the water might travel, but uh, there are so many variables. You know, things like friction, for instance, one of the three factors, which you, you it's very hard to estimate. So you, in the end, we have to go back to real-life observation in order to validate this at some point, don't we? We, we do indeed. And there's also uh, the challenge that um, even with the supercomputers we've got now, we're actually very limited in what we can model from absolutely first principles. And there are some people who have written, who have gone into some depth about even if quantum computing becomes like the iPhone or the uh, some non-proprietary uh, product, <laughs> the whatever we hold in our hand these days, uh, becomes quantum computing, are we going to be able to crack the code on some of these pretty hard problems where observations aren't going to come for many, many uh, years, like the impact of um, uh, changing uh, climate, for example. And there are answers around, I don't profess to really understand them, that suggest no, never. You will never be able to model things to the degree where from first principles, uh, you can forward predict a system. Uh, to give an example of complexity, uh, the blade, turbine blades in a, a jet engine have uh, tiny little holes uh, in them uh, that flow. There's a small flow into these holes to control boundary layer uh, conditions. The so-called high fidelity modeling, where they don't make assumptions about the nature of turbulence, uh, they just solve the Navier-Stokes equation uh, straight off. Um, at best can model one or two around one or two holes. Now you have thousands of these things and you have interactions at the edges and, you know, etc. So we're just so far away. And some would argue we will never be able to model everything from first principles. So we're always going to need observations and a certain amount of empiricism. Yeah. Now, having having spent uh, probably the best part of uh, twenty five minutes really talking about the limitations of science, let's talk about the you know the excitement of science and and because I know that's what drives you and and it's what what drives all of us. I think the idea that we're going to make things and life's going to get better as a result of it. And and Australia, I always think, is a wonderful example. I mean, we were settled in the scientific era. We were settled in a sense by scientists, and we've 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 been a society which has progressed with. Uh, through science and technology, and are still progressing. So that's that's terrific. Could I just before we move on to what we're going to talk about about um, about farming and carbon retention in the soil, which we're both very um, involved in at the moment? Could I just branch out and test another thing with you as a chemical engineer? Plastic. Plastic's got a very bad name at the moment, um, and uh, uh, there's a lot of it around, right? But it seems to me when people talk about you know the cost of plastic, almost always plastic waste and almost always in the ocean, we're not looking about the benefits, are we? Uh, but plastic's been revolutionary in terms of our our lifestyles. It's kept food fresher. It's it's made things lighter. It means we can make things that we could never make before. It, it, 
tell me, as a chemical engineer, plastic, it's a wonderful thing, right? Well, plastic is a wonderful thing. And I did, uh, let me hark back to my uh, postdoc. Um, uh, I was tossing up between a couple of universities. Um, and, and then I found this industrial uh, laboratory. It was from uh, Imperial Chemical Industries. Uh, where it would appear that they were the most advanced in mathematical modeling uh, in the world at the time, outside of the military, uh, I might add. And it turned out that Bowesdown House was just that. And I had a wonderful uh, two years there. These were people who, I mean, this is going way back, um, uh, late uh, 60s, who, given the lack of availability of compute power, built their own. Uh, these were people who worked for the military because they could actually solve things uh, in terms of designing rocket engines and what have you. Uh, they also worked for the weapons and research establishment at Aldermaston um, um, that uh, the experts in those areas just um, uh, couldn't uh, do. So you look at all that and say, um, these people, why were they so good at this? Well, it's actually dead simple. ICI at the time had the world record for production of certain plastics. They had the best process, they had the largest reactors, they had the best cost, they had the highest quality, etc. And they scaled up one of their processes, um, you know, a fairly nowadays commonplace uh, process, to build the world's largest reactor for this particular um, a precursor of a, a polymer. And it failed. And this actually really stunned them, apart from the fact that it was a fair bit of money uh, down the drain. And so they set up this laboratory, uh, or they remodeled this uh, laboratory with the um, uh, requirement that they should underlie the technology that I see and understand uh, the technology that I see I use so that they could never make a mistake like that again. And so that was the mob that I um, uh, went into. And so it was quite a bit, quite a bit of what I was doing was to do with uh, plastics. Um, and so I've been close to some aspects of that uh, for much of the working life. I look at where we are now and say, yes, uh, you're quite right, Nick. We easily forget the benefits that are delivered when we're looking at the downside. But that still doesn't excuse the downside. We cannot have what's ending up in the oceans the way things are heading. We cannot have the so-called white desert areas that we will have seen, uh, and it's not just around landfill. We shouldn't be landfilling anyway. That's a no-no. Um, so we have to look at this more in the longer term of anything and everything we make. You've got to consider it all the way through to the end of its life. And the end of its life might be simply that you incinerate it, catching all the nasties, I might add, and treating them. Or it might be that you meticulously pull it to bits and each little bit goes back into the recycle stream for that particular thing or into a further use. By the way, it is a... And this is sort of heading towards the circular economy. Uh, the circular economy, by the way, always still requires energy. Anyone that thinks we can have a circular economy um, uh, without energy, of course, uh, is not living on this planet. Um, but coming back to the point, we have to head more 
to designing things so that we have the end use in mind and not just the immediate use, even though the immediate use is the one that's going to deliver the benefits, because you just can't go on mounting up the downsides uh, that we have uh, at the moment. Um, I would just add the comment that it's complex because when you look at any material and you say, well, let's recycle it, let me just give you a really simple example. We talked about beer cans and dropping them to prove Newton's uh, law in a cyclone, etc. Now, would you believe that aluminium cans are pretty useless to recycle the aluminium? A lot of people argue, look, you can recycle it. You only use one-fifth of the electricity to melt it down and turn it back into new aluminium. And the answer is, yeah, but the new aluminium you turn it into is pretty useless for can stock because cans are made of two components, a very malleable so-called deep drawing aluminium, which is the body of the can, which has got almost no strength uh, at all, and the top, which is where the strength is, by the way, um, it would be a disaster to try and make the whole thing out of deep drawing, highly malleable uh, aluminium. So when you melt it down, you end up with an alloy which cannot be used for deep drawing. So you've got to say, oh, well, I'll use it for um, garden furniture, etc. And so all of a sudden, you've hit upon this thing, and it's about entropy and making mixtures and can you separate them and what's the cost of separating them uh, and so on. The same with copper in cars. If you can't pull the copper out of a car when you mash it all up and you're going to recover all the steel in it, the steel you recover is pretty useless for a lot of things because small amounts of copper in steel don't go down well and the costs of pulling it out in um, the steel works is pretty prohibitive. Yeah, we might come back to that in a future podcast, actually. Um... The Morrison government has a lot of focus on recycling right now, uh, particularly plastics, and I'm finding this area fascinating. I didn't know that about aluminium, incidentally, but I guess it's, it's a scientific principle, isn't it, that uh, the, the recycled form always ends up degrading, whether it's plastic or, or glass. Well, there are very, very few things that we recycle, or sorry, that we use, which are pure. Um, even... Uh, uh, even gold jewellery, uh, generally it's not pure gold, thank you very much, because pure gold uh, bends a little bit easily, thank you very much. Uh, it's toughened up with something. So even when you recycle gold, you're not getting pure gold uh, back. And that applies in almost everything. We make mixtures, alloys, composites, uh, etc. There are half a dozen layers involved in a milk um, carton. Um, so when you say, well, we're going to recycle um, our milk cartons, and you pretty quickly sort of say, do you really think you're going to separate uh, all those minuscule thin layers? Nah, dream away. Well, let's uh, after these fascinating detours, let's get back to, to what we, we really wanted to discuss in particular today, and that's uh, soil improvement with the aim of improving farming and producing a benefit in terms of carbon retention. As a Menzies Research Centre, we're on the centre-right and we have people who ring me up or email me to say, look, Nick, you sound like you're, you're, you're supporting fossil fuel companies, where are you? And then somebody else will email me and say, this whole thing's a waste of time and money, you know, we don't need to um, 
to prevent carbon emissions. You know, it, it helps grow plants. So we want to find a reason to, uh, or reasons to, to, to say why the current, what I think the mainstream policy is, that, that we, we do uh, do everything we can to reduce emissions within the, uh, the scope of the technology available and within our economic capacity, that that's bipartisan policy, uh, to, but to say why that's a sensible policy. And it seems to me that with regenerative farming, this is wonderful because you've got, by improving the soil, you, you increase productivity in the farms, you lower inputs, uh, you increase water retention, so you deal with this problem of Australia has of being the driest continent in the world, and then there's this extra benefit that it's a very efficient way to abate carbon. That's right, isn't it? And when when you first explained this to me, you explained how much more carbon you could abate in the soil compared to in plants. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, and it's dangerous uh, to quote them uh, when you. I could pull it up uh, fairly easily. Um, it's dangerous to quote numbers when uh, you haven't actually got them uh, in front of you. Uh, but a few things on that. Uh, the Firstly, when we stand way back and go right back to your uh, points about uh, least cost uh, abatement, um, I don't put soil sequestration in the same framework as least cost abatement. It probably is the least cost abatement, by the way, but if you approach it just from what's the least cost, you're missing an awful lot of other benefits when we're talking soil sequestration. And you've listed um, um, a good few of them, the uh, a better drought resilience, less use of uh, fertilizers, less use of chemicals, um, better water retention, which means less runoff. So if you want to stop runoff into the barrier reef, for heaven's sake, stop using so many farm chemicals, stop having so much flooding because you don't retain water. Um, and that when you do get high runoff, as we currently do at the moment, it gouges out streams below their water table, you know, etc. below their floodplain, sorry, um, et cetera, et cetera. There were just so many benefits here. But we, it's, it's not even worth entering the argument about, well, are we doing this because it's least cost abatement and that will therefore allow our lignite fired power stations and our black coal fired power stations and even our natural gas fired power stations to go on emitting until the shareholders are long since dead and the next generation might have a different view of where they should be. No, no, no. We're not in that business at all. We're in the business of saying that we try to get emissions down in a sensible way, sensible meaning uh, uh, sensible costs, outlays, uh, least number of people displaced, and so it goes on. But when we come to soil sequestration, this is a different kettle of fish. This is one where there are two roadways of benefits, um, one of them being the sort of list that we've both just rehearsed of the benefits you get and the other one being that it is negative emissions so they're both worth pursuing not as excuses for doing nothing in other areas but just because they stand on their own merits so let's get on with it is my approach here yeah and and um just talk through again the benefits for farmers so most farmers um run pretty uh, difficult businesses at times, you know, cash flow and so forth is up and down, they're, they're hostage to the weather, hostage to stock prices, wheat prices or whatever. 
but the, this makes sense, doesn't it, for, for a farm to look at changing its practices to focus on the quality of the soil and the retention of water and other factors because there'll be immediate or pretty quick benefits in terms of profitability on the farm. Those that have followed the practices uh, and changed, uh, you know, have reintroduced animals, for example, have uh, uh, introduced off-farm organic inputs, compost, uh, uh, for example, um, have tended to do better economically. But you can't, this is one of the catches. Firstly, you can't say for any given property, what's the optimal change for you to make? Because there are so many variables uh, at work here, not the least of which is nobody can predict with surety the benefit that you're going to get in your first year or your second year. By the way, after you've been going for a couple of years, it starts to become a pretty easy uh, or much easier as to the path uh, that you're on. Because you cannot say, for example, that if in the first year uh, you just have a total drought, no rain whatsoever, and you go another three years, you've spent an awful lot of money, you've put in fences, uh, you've uh, uh, brought back stock and then had to destock, I might add, uh, if you're uh, suddenly into a drought and stay uh, with uh, a drought. Um, you've got rid of your, if you were doing light tilling uh, and replaced it with the kit so that you can do um, disc seed drilling, etc. for your planting. You've actually spent quite a bit of money and potentially in one year you can make nothing. But then if you take a five to ten year view, the track record and the case studies suggest that you will be much better off. And much better can be a pretty impressive number. It can be even counting the costs of conversion that you're talking, not 20% internal rate of return on your funds, but 40% of that sort of order. That's pretty tempting numbers in agriculture, but there's no guarantees on it. And that's the rub. If you're already in debt and already working 24-7, and you're told, well, now you've actually got to do things differently. And it'll be a bit more work uh, initially, by the way. You've got to move cattle around now or sheep around now. And you'd got rid of all of your animal yards and you'd got rid of all of your fences so that you could have super large uh, harvesters uh, and kit, uh, what have you. That's actually a pretty tough ask. Yet case study after case study says, have a look at people who have changed over a five to 10 year period and they're better off and this is not just in australia by the way this is a, a, a phenomenon in many uh, countries but that's not an easy proposition to sell because it isn't necessarily just straight ahead and furthermore uh, one has to on the science here say where we just don't have enough observation now to reliably predict what the sequestration rate is going to be for a given farm in a given circumstance next year. Um, even when you say, well, you know, give us a range based on what the rainfall uh, might be. Um, for farmlands where the changes are going to be fairly slow, um, it might be five years before you really know where you are. We'll come out of that measurement question in a moment because that's where you're, you're particularly um, focused. But I think, and I'm interested in your views, one of the great things about this project 
we've been working on and the dis- great discussions we've had with you know people like John Anderson and some some great people who know this field very well, people like Terry McCosker and Peter Howarth, is they've forced us, haven't they, to come back to this real world problem? So there's a scientific argument and discussion, which which you know is your your speciality, but it it matters not a jot unless you can actually find practical ways in which farmers can take up and benefit from this science. And we've been brought back to that point at every time in our discussions, which I found very refreshing. Yeah, and I think we have to focus on a few things. One is building up the corpus of knowledge and experience um, of when you make changes, which changes uh, have the most effect, um, what's the best order for a given uh, a farm operator in at a given uh, point in time, and making that corpus of knowledge uh, widely available to the people who specialise in giving advice, uh, agronomical uh, advice, uh, etc. Uh, that's part of it. Part of it is that I do think um, there needs to be some... Uh, help for the transition and there's been recently announced a scheme whereby if people want to transition into um, an approved um, uh, carbon farming method uh, there is some help available but I've got to say unfortunately the amount of help uh, that's available that's being pushed at the moment and this was only announced a few days ago seems to me and I'm not claiming great expertise in it, seems to me to be just not enough to make a big difference to um, uptake. Um, So that's a bit of a challenge. But one of the core challenges is that if you're going to pay farmers on an annual basis for making these changes and actually help them initially, then you've got to have some fair idea of what's happening year on year. And we just can't afford at the moment the measurement methods, I would argue, are too costly to come up with certifiable measurements for something which is pretty variable, particularly in the top part uh, of the soil, um, and not that easy to get statistical accuracy, the statistical accuracy that's needed to be able to justify a payment or for a financier to be able to take something on board and knowing that the risk they're taking is a reasonable uh, risk. You can't ask financiers to finance things if you've got no idea of what the, or just little idea of what the risk is. So we do keep coming back to saying an element that can help make this a lot easier for everyone is a reliable, really cheap measurement process that can be verified every few years or so by all the ground sampling, uh, ground proofing or whatever we want to call it. Uh, And then that just allows financiers to get into the act. It doesn't mean government has to be paying uh, for everything. Uh, And ultimately it allows carbon credits to be sold at whatever the market uh, will bear, be it our own ERF scheme or uh, offshore markets, private markets. Yeah, this is um, the area you're specifically working on uh, is the measurement with your team at the University of Melbourne. So it's basically, as I understand it, a way that that you can get an accurate 
measurement for how much carbon is in your soil right now so that if you're able to improve the you know put more carbon in next year then you'll get the benefit and and Australia will get the benefit too you know I mean it's something that we can we can add to our emissions abatement uh, total uh, when we have to answer to international treaties and so forth uh, yep how are you going to do this i mean how, what's the secret where are you looking to be able to do this i think that we've got to make We've got to make a bit of a jump forward um, in how we go about doing uh, these measurements. Um, we already have uh, a good carbon accounting method, the full CAM uh, work, um, uh, and we have models of uh, carbon turnover in soils, uh, both in broad acres and crops, that's the Roth Sea model, and also for forests um, is available. But when we look at the cheaper methods of measurement, they actually sort of stop at the plant level. They don't actually tell you what's going on in the soil. So you can get estimates of the density of plants and the amount of uh, plant to cover there. But remember the amount, and that's good. Um, subsequent to Kyoto, we're all used to the notion of count the carbon in the plants or the trees, uh, you know, trees or plants, um, and uh, we know where we are. But remember what's in the soil is three or four times what's in the foliage above. And that's a big number. And estimating that from remote measurements, be they satellite or fixed wing or drones, actually is not technically possible at the moment without so-called modeling, um, which makes all sorts of assumptions. We think that that's still the way to go, the remote measurement, because it's so much uh, cheaper than running around, even with automated gizmos, to pull samples out and um, uh, sensibly measure their carbon. But you've got to get through, uh, this is what we think is, it's the hopefully a breakthrough. You've got to get through to what the microbial side in the soil is doing. And this is the combination of bacteria and fungi uh, and so on. Now, interestingly, if you can measure the rate of photosynthesis of the plants above, you can have a fair idea of what that is signaling to the biome in the soil, which is what dictates ultimately what the soil carbon is. So if you start off with measurements, it's like saying, if we were talking climate, okay, we've got the data on what today is, the temperatures, the pressures, the flow rates, the humidities, et cetera, you know, for the whole of the global uh, atmosphere. Um, and now we've got a measure of the key inputs for what it's going to be like tomorrow. And, uh, but I want to stick with the uh, soil carbon and not get into uh, weather um, or climate uh, for that matter. So measuring photosynthesis and not just the mass of soil that's the mass of plant uh, that's there and ground proofing occasionally with actual measurements of the biome functionally what is the biome doing is there a balance between the bacteria with what they do and the fungi with what uh, they do uh, we think will lead to a prediction and a very low cost prediction that is actually certifiable and hence saleable so that's a game changer. Yes, indeed. And uh, just to, to round off, if I may, from from organisms in the soil to organs, <laughs> I can see behind you, uh. Zoom conference we're in, a magnificent organ. Um, uh, this is to the other connection with Menzies. You, you, are, you, are, uh, you, you went to Menzies 
the, the university at which Menzies was chancellor and which he studied. Correct. Uh, but you also um, have a close connection with the church, the Scots Church in Melbourne, which Menzies had a deep and abiding connection with as an organist. Menzies, uh, of course, the um, you're quite right, had a had an abiding uh, connection with Scots Church. Um, I did 20 years. I've actually stepped down now. I'm emeritus organist there. Uh, 20 years there of um, uh, playing the organ, um, and uh, part of the way through, they put in uh, what I would argue is certainly one of the best um, uh, organs in Australia. Uh, as a result of an international competition, um, which uh, there was an Australian builder, two from Europe and two from uh, North America, and one of the Europeans uh, won it. Um, and this was a person whose attention to detail is just unbelievable. And, and there's some messages in this that understanding the basics is actually always going to give you a better job than just looking over the shoulder of what other people are doing or what the world is doing and then trying to push it a bit further. Understand the basics. Every time we'll win out. This person made organs by the metal for the pipes, not the one we've got back here. This was made by a Danish uh, immigrant here, uh, but also very high quality. The one that I have in uh, Germany, you know, our house there is made by a Swiss, uh, also top uh, quality. Um, but coming back to the Riga in Scots, the um, metal for the pipework is poured by the ancient technique that uh, you have a, a long table uh, with dampened canvas on it and two side walls. You then have a trough that sits across it uh, and with a handle at each end and you pour the molten metal into the trough and a person on either end, they both start walking together. And if they walk quickly, it leaves a very thin sheet of metal, which quickly solidifies. If they walk slowly, it is very thick. For the bigger pipes, you need uh, thicker metal. For the small pipes, you need thinner metal. And that sounds like 16th or 17th century um, practice, and it is. But now let's look at the metal that goes into it. They have a mass spectrometer attached to the furnace where it's melted up that gives them composition to better than 0.1% of each component in it. Temperature is controlled to 0.5 degrees centigrade, etc. Um, when they lay the pipes out in the organ, the uh, principle of laying them out was uh, figured out by Don Beros in the, uh, the 17th uh, century, because if you put pipes too close together, sure you can cram more in, but they interfere uh, and they don't speak uh, properly. So they lay pipes out in the old, um, you know, like 400-year-old Don Beros uh, technique, but the pipe holes that they sit in they're drilled, of course, by numerical machines to better than 0.1 millimeter accuracy. So it's this combination of attention to detail, understand the fundamentals. In other words, Don Bedos got it right. And you can prove that uh, with very fancy physics and fluid mechanics, uh, I might add. So yeah, yeah, um, there's an awful lot of uh, science and craft uh, in organs. And uh, perhaps that emphasizes uh, it's a pity by the way that Menzies never heard the current organ in Scots because it is an absolute delight I know the organ that he heard because that's what I learned on 
uh, as a 13 year old, I used to go into the uh, city uh, once a week uh, for my um, organ lesson. I think initially I was allowed to use one or two stops <laughs> and a year or two later uh, allowed a bit more leeway. Well, Robin, thank you. We've covered a lot, haven't we? We've done beer cans, recycling of same, we've done climate policy, we've done soil carbon sequestration and the construction of organs in uh, Europe. So it's been fantastic. Thank you. I've enjoyed very much our conversations on Zoom um, on, on as we've been working on this project together. The Menzies Research Centre, incidentally, will be bringing out a policy paper along with Page Research Centre uh, addressing some of the, the points that you raised there about, particularly on the financing side. And um, and you're working on a, a separate piece of work with another group. I think there's going to be a real push on this issue this year. It, uh, we know that the Prime Minister is very interested in resilience as a theme, resilience to the soil. So uh, thank you for the work you're doing on that. It's very important. And uh, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. That was MRC Policy Podcast number 36 with former Chief Scientist Robin Batterham. And I hope you'll consider becoming one of the growing band of people who support these podcasts by becoming a subscriber. Go to menziesrc.org and press subscribe. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. Thank you.